0: to last week. This set of verses before us uh, this morning we often hear at funerals. If you were with us last week, you remember we um, heard from Pastor Chad on the beloved Psalm 23. John 14 is the same. It has a lot of memories associated with it. So I'm going to do a pretty big ask to start this morning. I'm going to ask that you all try to forget everything you've heard or have thought about these verses, just for the next, you know, eight-ish minutes. Remove the funerals, the church camp campfire songs, which you literally just heard, and I promise I wrote this line before I knew Katie was doing that song, which is funny. Forget the mid-90s CCM songs about a house where we can play football. Forget all of the times you have heard this verse These verses as threats of future damnation. Forget all of the ways you have heard this verse and these sets of verses. Can you try to do that with me? Now, I would usually wait at this moment for like nods and yeses, but um, I'm going to trust that we are all agreeing to do this together. Nick is nodding in the back. That's good enough for me. And know that I'm not asking you to do this alone. I'm starting this way today because. This is what I have had to do with these verses in order to move into it. I had to remove my own preconceptions, to remove it from the memories of funerals that I have led for people I've loved who are no longer here and the times these verses have been used against me as proof of my own lack of good or right faith. This section of John 14 is not really about any of those things. Context matters. Both Pastor Chad and I have said this many, many times before today, because it is very, very important. Today's well-known verses are in John 14. In John's gospel, this is before Jesus has been arrested, before his crucifixion, before his resurrection. In John 13, Jesus and the disciples are gathering in an upper room and Jesus washes their feet, which is intimate and feels odd and they fight it a bit. And then they share a meal and Jesus says, someone around the table is going to betray me. And then Judas runs out of the room to do just that. And then Jesus tells them to love each other and then he also predicts Peter's denial three times in the coming evening. It's a lot. And in this moment, the disciples are sitting around that table feeling very shaken. It is into that moment, that moment where they are quite shaken, Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust in me. It's like he's saying, listen guys, I know I've just done a bunch of things that you don't understand and I've said a bunch of stuff that doesn't make sense and you can't even imagine what is about to come next, but don't let your hearts be troubled. And Jesus continues, in my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. That word, dwelling, dwelling place, is the Greek word meno. We have talked about this word before. Perfectly translated, this word means abide. So this verse can actually say, in God's house there are many abiding places. Now, we might not use this word a lot in our regular language these days, but it is one of the most commonly used words in John's Gospel. He uses this word, meno, 41 times in 21 chapters. Abide. It can also mean remain or, yes, dwell. And just a quick side note about this word, meno does not mean we dwell in mansions, which is a way to translate this verse that is, I'm going to say, gross. Uh, I could spend an hour on this one point and how we have made this beautiful image John paints for us of abiding with God in relationship into something flashy and gaudy and gold-plated. I could spend a lot of time on it, but I won't, at least not today. For now, know that this is not what meno means, and anytime you see this word translated as mansions, it is wrong, I think. Meno means abide, and abide is a state of being. It is not a place, and because it's not a word we are used to, we also might assume it is a place. Abiding is a way to be with each other. It's not a physical location. And because the disciples also don't quite understand this word abide, they grab onto the idea that there is a place somewhere that they have to get to. And they say, We don't know this place, Jesus. How will we know the way? I love this question that Thomas asks, probably because I relate to it so much. I also want a map. I want a set of instructions to get me from A to B. And this year, in this time and place, I read this with a much different sense of not knowing where we are going or what is happening next. I so related to Thomas saying, but we don't know where this place is, so we're going to need you to show us the way. Now, Jesus' reply was not an eye roll, Or annoyance but love. You do know the way, he says. You do. I am the way. I am the way. I am the map that you need. I am the place. It is me. This is Jesus allaying fears. You see, the disciples are scared They don't know what's happening exactly, but they can feel in the air that it is not going to be good. And Jesus offers them this gift of love and care that we have often turned into something quite different. And I have to be honest, it makes me furious to hear this verse used as judgment. The way you come to know God is by knowing me, Jesus says, and you know me. You're sitting with me at this table, he says. When Jesus says, if you know me, you know God, it is a grammatically this thing called a condition of fact, which we, you know, forget our grammar pretty quickly. And so it means, if you know me and you do, then you know God. It is a statement of fact. And that you in the Greek is plural. This is not an individual you, like the thing you have to do is believe the right way or say this perfect prayer, right? This is you all, you all know me, so you all know God. It has already happened. You already know. There is not a single requirement given to this knowing. No prayer you have to say, no doctrine you need to follow. Jesus has made the way. When he says, No one comes to the Father but through me, he means the way. He has made the way for us to know God. He is that way. Now I understand. How, to sum this can sound exclusionary. I do. I do understand it. I can even understand how people have read it this way because we certainly like to find ways to show how we are right and someone else is wrong or how we are in and someone else is out. We, we really enjoy that work. Jesus is saying, through Jesus, we know God. But what he does not say is that the reverse is then true. He does not say, if you do not know Jesus, you do not know God. That is not here in his words at all. I was on a call this week with author and preaching professor Caroline Lewis. She is a scholar of the Gospel of John, and listening to her talk about this text was by far the best part of my week. She said that John's gospel uses I am statements all over the place. Many of us could name a few off the top of our heads, right? If I was with the room, in the room with all of you, I would have you name some, right? I am the, what? Good shepherd, Katie says. I am the bread. I am the vine. Not a single one of those other I am statements have been turned into statements of judgment in the way that this one has. None of them have been preached as statements of exclusion. Not even the one about a gate, which is literally a thing that keeps people in and out. Jesus talks about being an open gate. I am the way, he says. You don't need a map. You don't need step-by-step instructions. You have me. This is the exact opposite of judgment in every single way. I have loved this section of John's Gospel for years. I have loved reading it for people during difficult times, but I have never loved it like I have this week. Because as much as you all know I love sassy and snarky Jesus, this week we have Pastor Jesus. He just offers love and grace and gentle care that I don't think I'm wrong in saying we all need a little bit of right now. And that's why the context of this matters so much. The disciples are shaken. Remember, they do not know what is happening and they're freaking out. And can you imagine Jesus being like, well, you better step in line or else... He says, meno, abide. Abiding in John's gospel is always, always about a relationship, not a place. It is being with God. It is trusting in a God who abides, who stays with us. In my Father's house, Jesus says, there are many places to abide with me. I'm going to prepare a place for us to abide together. And then he is arrested and he is killed and he rises again and in doing so prepares a place for us to abide forever. The way has been made complete for us to may know to dwell forever, as Pastor Chad read for us in that familiar Psalm 23, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. may know, this is pure grace, and this is for you too. Jesus looks at all of you who right now are panicked and worried about what is next and how we're going to do this and how we're going to do this for so long, and says, I've got you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And yes, things are scary, and yes, you're feeling shook, and things are going to get a lot worse before they get better, but I am the way, and you are not alone. And you know me, and because you know me, you know God. And if I am there, God is there. And we will dwell, remain, abide together. This whole gospel this morning and the whole Gospel of John over and over is about abiding, about our relationship, staying with. And this is what Jesus leaves with his disciples before he goes. He says, I am God who stays who knows you and loves you, who looks at you in your fears and anxiety and offers love and care and so much grace. Do not let your hearts be troubled. I am here and I'll remain.